G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. It's good to be back and doing this again. Before we get much further into this third season of the podcast, I thought we should talk about the new character that's introduced to our story here in Genesis 3 verse 1. Ah, the serpent, the riddle shrouded in mystery, encased in an enigma. That is the serpent. The terror that flaps in the night. We mentioned this before. That's Darkwing Duck. Oh, yeah. This character is introduced to us as the Nakash, which is one word for serpent or snake in Hebrew, among other words that are also used to describe or refer to snakes. But before we get into picking apart the language and trying to understand the presence of the serpent in the garden let's have a look at what we can learn from the context that produced the scriptures and see if we can learn anything by taking a big picture view of these kinds of references in the broader ancient near east i want to just briefly mention something about the prophet isaiah and his ministry around the 7th century bc now it might seem a little strange that we'd go to isaiah given that his time was prior to the period of the exile, which has been so much the focus of our podcast so far. But the life and times of Isaiah shed light on some relevant material for our discussion here. And as I mentioned last week, there are some heavy ties to Egyptian culture that are going to prove to be very informative. So here's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. All right, I'm just going to leave it there because our focus here is on the seraphim. So that passage contains the only two direct references to these entities called seraphim. These are divine beings that Isaiah sees in the temple of God, in which God sits enthroned. Obviously, this is a vision that Isaiah is seeing. He didn't personally lay eyes on God incarnate. The big question here is why only Isaiah sees these entities and nobody else in all of Scripture encounters them by that name or description. One particular feature of Isaiah's prophecy is his fondness of referring back to the exodus from Egypt in his writing. He refers to the crossing of the Red Sea about half a dozen times. Isaiah knows that the Exodus is a fundamentally important story in Israel's history and culture, and he knows that referring to things that remind the Israelites of their former bondage in Egypt is a particularly powerful tool to help them recognize when they're in jeopardy. Isaiah also makes use of Egyptian terminology from time to time, and this is where we see the connection to the seraphim in chapter 6. Seraphim are a notable feature of Egyptian imagery and are often portrayed as defenders of sacred space. So... What do they look like? Isaiah tells us that these creatures have six wings. 
They have a face, which in Isaiah's vision was covered by two of the wings, and they have feet, which were covered by another two of the wings, and they can fly, which is what the third pair of wings enabled them to do. Evidently, they have hands as well, because one is able to use a pair of tongs to pluck a burning coal from the altar. So these creatures have legs. Does that mean that the serpent in Genesis 3 also had legs until they got chopped off when God cursed him to crawl on his belly? Well, that is a popular notion, but we can't really substantiate that from the text of Genesis 3. It's more like the kind of thing that you have to assume if you're going to take the text at face value and then assume that there's an unspoken implication in the text that proves the assumption. What about dragons, though, right? There must be dragons in here somewhere. Maybe, but uh, getting back to the seraphim. Maybe, that's all I get, just a maybe. Are you telling me we're not going to talk about dragons after you just teased us with a maybe that's a bit ambiguous it's a quote jim carrey so you're telling me there's a chance uh, perhaps another time we, we've got a lot to cover maybe maybe someone could send us a question but uh getting back to the seraphim from that description alone we're able to tell that we're getting a description of a creature that matches nothing in the naturally occurring world well the biggest clue to what this creature is like comes from seraphim the hebrew root is saraf meaning to burn so seraphim means burning ones. This is a luminous creature that has the appearance of burning with fire. What's going on here is that we have an interesting play on another common word that means snake, which is simply seraph. So this is some kind of winged creature that is somehow also reptilian in appearance. Oh, yeah, here we go. Reptilians, like the TV series V, like aliens and stuff. All right. Lay it on me. No, moving right along. Uh, look at the common use of the term to denote ordinary poisonous snakes. We'd all be familiar with the scene in the wilderness where the Lord sends snakes against the complaining Israelites. We find that in Numbers chapter 21. Let's have a look at the story uh, from verse 4. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. I love these uh, grumblings they have. There. Uh, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. All right, so we'll leave that one there. And in verse 6, we have venomous snakes or nachash seraph, snakes that burn. In verse 7, the people refer to the snakes as nachash. In verse 8, God tells Moses to make a snake, but here the word is seraph. And in verse 9, the bronze snake is nachash nekoshet, serpent of bronze. What this tells us is that the term seraph can be equivalent to nakash, the venomous serpent that shines like bronze. Now, getting back to the ordinary poisonous snakes that the Israelites were so worried about, there's a good chance that these are a kind of snake that was known in Egypt as the Uraeus, or the Egyptian cobra. It's venomous and potentially deadly. It doesn't spit venom like some other snakes can, but the venom itself is a powerful neurotoxin and basically works to shut the body down in a paralysis that results in death. Its head is hooded like other typical cobras, so it has the appearance of small wings. 
Strangely enough, in both Hebrew and Egyptian languages, the word used for this snake is roughly the same. So Isaiah's use of the term makes sense to Israelites while also communicating elements of Egyptian iconography that are consistent with what he sees in his vision. It's interesting that we actually have archaeological evidence that this kind of imagery was actually in use in Isaiah's day in Judah. An engraved seal has been found depicting the scene described by Isaiah and featuring text stating that the seal belonged to a man whose name was Ashnah. This man was a courtier of King Ahaz. He served in the same royal court alongside the prophet Isaiah and under the same king. These guys probably knew each other. The seal depicts Yahweh in the form of a solid disc, wearing a royal crown and surrounded by seraphim. So it provides material evidence that the vision Isaiah saw was not a unique concept, but a well-known description of God in his royal court, accompanied by these serpentine divine creatures known as the seraphim. You might be familiar with depictions of Egyptian pharaohs where they have a cobra's head on their crown. This is exactly where that kind of imagery comes from, and it's associated with the same meaning. If the snake, the Uraeus as they call it, is a divine throne guardian and protector of sacred space, and he's on the pharaoh's head, then that means that the pharaoh himself is sacred space because he is the embodiment of the god. We've talked about all these ideas before, so that should be nothing new, but it certainly explains what the pharaoh is doing walking around with a snake on his head. Well, I did wonder about that. Wonder no more, my friend. So now we've seen how Isaiah uses Egyptian imagery to describe the guardians of God's throne. But how are these represented in other cultures? In Assyrian and Canaanite art, we find the cherubim performing the same function as the throne guardians in Isaiah's vision, but they look very different. Ezekiel talks about cherubim and gives us a description of them which differs from Isaiah's vision, but is equally intriguing. This is Ezekiel 10. I looked, and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When the Lord commanded the man in linen, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. The man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took up some of it and put it into the hands of the man in linen, who took it and went out. Under the wings of the cherubim could be seen what looked like human hands. I looked and I saw beside the cherubim four wheels, one beside each of the cherubim. The wheels sparkled like topaz. As for their appearance, the four of them looked alike. Each was like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the cherubim faced. The wheels did not turn about as the cherubim went. The cherubim went in whatever direction the head faced without turning as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, their hands and their wings, were completely full of eyes, as were their four wheels. I heard the wheels being called the whirling wheels. Each of the cherubim had four faces. One face was that of a cherub, 
the second, the face of a human being, the third, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose upward. These were the living creatures I had seen by the Kabar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the cherubim spread their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels did not leave their side. When the cherubim stood still, they also stood still, and when the cherubim rose, they rose with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar River, and I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and four wings, and under their wings was what looked like human hands. Their faces had the same appearance as those I had seen by the Kabar River. Each one went straight ahead. All right, that's the end of the chapter. So these creatures have four wings, lots of eyes, four faces, hands under the wings. I don't think I need to tell you that these creatures are not ordinary animals. The wheels are not part of the cherubim, but the cherubim accompany the wheels. In other words, they surround the chariot of God. But if these creatures protect sacred space, just like the seraphim of Isaiah 6, why do they look different? I think the answer to that one is simply function and context. In Isaiah, the Lord is seen in his temple, surrounded by his throne guardians. And Isaiah's familiarity with Egyptian imagery came in handy for describing the dire situation that King Ahaz was in. In Ezekiel's situation, the Assyrian imagery was more relevant because the intent is to cover the ability of God to go wherever he pleases and to show that he is not confined to the temple. Ezekiel is also familiar with Egyptian imagery, but as we see in chapter 31, he prefers to use Assyrian imagery even when speaking to Egyptians. But anyway, this should serve as a reminder that we need not expect that the creatures depicted in these visions actually look like that in real life, if you can see them at all. You might be starting to think by now that we're a long way away from talking about the serpent in Genesis 3. Yeah, I was uh, tempted to bring that up. But since I mentioned Ezekiel, let's have a look at chapter 28. We've already covered this elsewhere in the podcast in some detail, so I'm just going to touch on it here. This is Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 14. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. I won't spend any time talking about the human king of Tyre, but we have this wise and beautiful divine being dwelling in the Garden of Eden among the other divine beings, which in this passage are called the fiery stones. I get it now. I was wondering what they were. Nobody ever talks about the fiery stones. They don't, do they? Well, there you go. And God calls him a guardian cherub. At least that's what he was. That's what he was made for. But we have talked before about what happens when an individual goes against the word of God. When your actions do not align with God's words, you get removed from God's presence. And that is what happened to this divine rebel. 
Chris, since you mentioned the idea of the serpent with legs in Genesis 3, maybe now it's a good time to clarify that there is a way to understand that concept in a manner consistent with what the scripture does tell us. The serpent as a divine being has certain abilities and access to certain places. The Bible refers to these aspects of divine beings in terms of glory. If we see the cursing of the serpent, which of course we're going to study in more detail later on this season, as a stripping away of glory, then the result of this action is a loss of abilities and a loss of access to certain places. And I think that that is closer to the message we're supposed to be taking away from the text, rather than getting fixated on whether this creature actually had physical legs. So we'll never actually find out whether or not the devil wears Prada? Well, if he's a snake, I don't think there's much he could wear. Maybe a, a nice tie, maybe? Mm, possibly. I don't know, can you hold a tie up without shoulders? I don't know. I, actually, I think the serpent does have shoulders because he's certainly not armless. Oh, oh boy. We, oh. It took a while, but it was worth it in the end. This is why I should just stick to the script. <laughs> Again, I'm not going to get into discussions about some kind of pre-Adamic civilization where this guy comes on the scene and turns bad and then God creates the Garden of Eden and puts the bad guy in it. I've talked about that before. It's really just an attempt to create some kind of justification for the gap theory. The text is pretty clear. God created this guy to be one of his personal throne guardians. Somewhere along the way, he decides that he wants to do something else. As I mentioned before, the word for serpent in this text in Genesis 3 is nachash. It comes from a triliteral root, which could be read either as serpent or diviner or shining one. And I've talked before about the way that the scriptures were heard by their audience back in the day as they were read aloud in the temple. The listener is supposed to pick up on this route and cycle through the entire semantic range of the word. It's not a case of picking one that seems to fit. If you ask the question, what are we talking about here? Is it a servant or a diviner or a shining one? The answer would be yes. Remember how we talked about the bronze serpent in the wilderness? The shining, fiery serpent that connected the terms Saraf Nechoshet with Nachash. That bronze serpent isn't a representation of a divine rebel, but a protector of sacred space and the holiness of God. It's symbolic of the wisdom and the regenerative power of God. That's why Moses was instructed to make the image of a serpent in bronze instead of some other kind of image, is to remind the Israelites that Yahweh is like no other God. Serpents in the ancient world were looked at favorably as representations of wisdom and as symbolic of immortality because of the power of regeneration that was evident whenever a snake shed its skin. So the skin would be cast off and this shiny new snake seems to emerge from the dead skin. So it made sense to use the image of a snake as something for the Israelites to look upon in order to be reminded of God's wisdom and his ability to create and sustain life. So snakes were a good thing? Yeah. You may have heard people say that the bronze serpent was an act of what they call sympathetic magic, where the cure for snake bite was found in looking at the image of a snake. This was apparently a common thing in the ancient world, but I think we've already seen enough reasons to negate that hypothesis beyond the simple logic that God doesn't need to use magic. Did God create the serpent to be a bad guy? No, he didn't. The serpent can choose his actions just like we do. And that's what he did before humans followed suit. So I mentioned the three different ways that you can read the Hebrew term nachash. That should be fairly self-evident now that we've brought up a lot of it in our discussion already. 
we talked about the serpentine features and the shining appearance and the venomous nature of this unpredictable creature that possesses a great deal of power, wisdom, and beauty. But what about the divination aspect? Remember that scripture is functional and names are functional, even when it's not a proper name. They do a lot more than just describe someone's appearance. So we need an understanding of divination if we're going to understand the function of this character. The practice of divination takes many forms as described in the Bible, but the form itself can be misleading because it leads us to think that as long as we've outlawed the form of divination that we don't like, then we're not doing it. The reality is that the people of God, in keeping with the will of God, have often used the same practices that are outlawed for God's people to do God's work, and it seems apparent from Scripture that God does not have a problem with it. Which sounds uh, not very fair. So how does that work exactly? Well, this is because the root of divination, as Scripture is concerned with it, that makes it a bad thing, is the ambition to receive divine knowledge apart from God. As an example, we have the practice of casting lots, or basically the equivalent of rolling dice to determine an outcome. It's okay when Joshua rolls dice to decide who gets which portion of the promised land. It's okay when the disciples roll dice to find a replacement for Judas Iscariot. It's okay when the king of Babylon does it to decide how he will attack Jerusalem according to Ezekiel. In fact, the king of Babylon seeks omens and conducts extispacy, which is examining the internal organs of slaughtered animals in a ritual, kind of like reading tea leaves, but you do it with guts, uh, and even consults idols, which are, of course, the man-made bodies of demonic spirits. But then the king of Babylon is a pagan and he's going to do whatever he does without realising that God is using him as a tool to accomplish his will in the punishment of the Judean people. Ironically, it is the idolatry and divination of the people that's being punished by someone who will use those same means against them to determine their fate. God does not appear to be concerned with the form of the practice of receiving divine knowledge for his people as long as it is in accordance with his instruction and relies on his divine wisdom rather than that of another. And as we noticed with the king of Babylon, as described by Ezekiel just now, what the pagans do with regard to getting information out of their own gods isn't really a concern. So the problem presented by the serpent, which should be obvious enough, is that he offers divine wisdom to God's people without going through the proper channel to receive it. Thus, he functions as the diviner. Hey, Chris, did you notice that we went all the way through this episode without using the word Satan? Yeah, and I was wondering when that was going to come up. But isn't it kind of assumed that that's who we're talking about? It's kind of interesting that at no point throughout the entire Old Testament and even through the entire body of Second Temple period literature that we have outside of the Bible, and even all the way through the New Testament until we get to the book of Revelation, absolutely nobody makes the connection between the serpent in the garden and the entity known as Satan. And then along comes John, the author of Revelation. But I think we'll talk about that another time. That sounds very interesting, but man, you're teasing us again. Yeah, I should just mention before we wrap it up, just changing the subject to uh, divert attention, uh, that I recently did a guest appearance on another podcast that you might want to check out. It's called The Weird Christian Podcast, and it's hosted by a guy by the name of Samuel Delgado, Really nice bloke. I had a great time on his show. That episode should be up this weekend if you want to check that out. Awesome. It's so good to uh, see that you're getting attention and uh, invitations on other podcasts. We should definitely check that out. But since we're going to be very unsatisfyingly left hanging in this episode, 
Maybe we should see if we can actually get some answers out of you, Tim. So it's time for our giant question segment. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Chris asked this question in the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook. I'm a Christian and would like to know if it's possible for Nephilim to be reincarnated as a normal human today? All right. Well, that's a great question. And I want to thank Chris for sending it in. I also had a private discussion with Chris, so I won't go into any personal details, but I have a bit more background on this question. So I might target the response a little more specifically toward those particular circumstances. Sounds like it's going to be interesting. Oh, it sure is. Firstly, let's talk about reincarnation. That's the idea in Hinduism and Buddhism, where your moral quality as an individual is expressed in your next life by the form that your soul takes as it's reborn into a new body. So if you've been good, then you might become a higher life form, and if you've been bad, then you might become something worse in your next life. I suppose it goes without saying that there's no Christian doctrine of reincarnation. That's strictly off the table and completely unbiblical, so there's that aspect for a start. But let's talk about the logic of reincarnation because it's going to help us understand why somebody might want to tell you that you're a reincarnated form of some other thing in a former life. So why would somebody want to tell you that you are a reincarnated form of some other thing in a former life? Again, as I say, the premise of reincarnation is that if you've been bad, then when you die, your soul is reborn in a new body in the next life, which is something worse than whatever you were in the previous incarnation. You'll generally know if somebody is a dog person or a cat person by how they respond to this idea. What about you, Chris? You're a dog person or a cat person? Dog, definitely. I reckon they both taste like chicken. Oh, boy. And again, if you've been really good, then when your next life comes around, you get to be some kind of better creature that's nicer or whatever. So you might hope to come back as some higher entity, like maybe an angel or something. I don't know, maybe a dolphin. This concept is not confined to simply creatures that we observe in the material world. It also applies to the unseen or the supernatural, if you want to use that term. So you might get reincarnated as a goblin or a dragon or an angel or a demon or any number of other things. But the guiding principle behind reincarnation is this assumption that the form you're in represents the moral quality of the person you were before and accentuates that quality either for better or worse. So if you were bad, you'll be worse. If you were good, you'll be better. So what does that say about the nature of humankind if a human being could be the reincarnation of a cannibalistic, flesh-eating, blood-drinking, child-abusing giant in a former life? Yeah, that uh, sounds horrible and quite damaging. Yeah, we probably don't need to clarify that. I will and just say that that's absolutely not true, nor is it possible. Here's what it says about you. Either your past life as one of the Nephilim was a good thing, and you're being rewarded for your vicious acts of cruelty by being born again as a human, or it was a bad thing and you were being punished by being transformed into something worse than a giant, specifically a human being. So on the one hand, this is an encouragement for you to continue in the works of the giants by killing and eating other people and by displaying violent cruelty toward humans. Or on the other hand, you could see this as... You are no longer worthy to be a cannibalistic, blood-sucking child abuser and you've been transformed into a human to show that you're even worse than that because that's what human beings are. Sorry, Calvinists. 
Actually, I don't think Calvinists believe in reincarnation, so you're probably safe there. Anyway, the bottom line here is that whichever way you cut it, the view expressed in this idea of the Nephilim being reincarnated as human beings is one that is intensely antagonistic towards humankind who are the image and likeness of God. And now we're getting to the real thrust of this. What we're seeing in this idea is an expression of utter hatred toward God and all that represents him. So if you thought this was about you, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but it's not. It's about God, and it's about the enemy having a swipe at him by taking you out. Because as I've said before on this podcast, the only way that the devil thinks he has a chance to win is by eliminating all representation of God from the world, since he has no chance against God himself. He's trying to lose by the narrowest margin possible, and we are, unfortunately, the collateral damage in this war. But it doesn't have to be that way. And we can turn around and become vessels used by God and equipped with the very weapons that Jesus Christ liberated from the realm of the dead by using the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself, to do the work of God here in this life. That's Ephesians 4, 8, by the way. So gifts like the discernment of spirits can now be used as a defense against those who would wield such a power against us. And that gift, of course, goes hand in hand with an intimate knowledge of Scripture to aid in that discernment. So you know what you have to do if you suspect that somebody is leading you astray with divination. Read the Bible, test the spirits, and remain in prayer with God. Now you can see why the scriptures are so harsh against divination. Look at the results you get. Let me be frank. Any person who tells you that you're not human or tries to connect you to the Nephilim or anything like that is probably under the influence of demons. Just being frank. Can I still call you Tim Frank? Yes. And am I still Chris Frank? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And stop calling me Yahoo Serious. I mean, surely. <laughs> okay, Chris, but that's only half of this issue, really. We talked about reincarnation and how the Bible refuted that. So we can scrap that idea by revealing what's really going on in the message of reincarnation from Nephilim to human. We can see pretty clear evidence that this is actually a demonic message from the supernatural forces of evil that are opposed to God. What we haven't touched on yet is whether it's even possible for the Nephilim to return. And could they be among us today? Because the question that lingers for a lot of people today is, what if I'm not human? What if I am something other that descended from the Nephilim? Yeah, and we've had uh, people ask similar questions before, haven't we? People have asked about blood types, I remember, and ancestry and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, we've actually covered this extensively in early episodes of the podcast, so... For those who came in late, it might really pay to go through the back catalogue of the last couple of seasons, particularly season one, and you'll get some answers to your questions there. But I'm going to sum it up here very briefly and without explanation because you can go back to those prior episodes to get more depth on this. The giants actually do change forms and come back a number of times throughout the course of Scripture. We read about their origin in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. They meet their doom in the Great Flood in chapters 7 and 8. They all perish, which is what the scriptures intend to communicate when it says that the purpose of the flood was to bring an end to all flesh except for that which remained upon the ark. The use of symbolic numbers in the flood story indicates firstly a testing of the giants, represented by the 40 days and nights of rain, followed by a change from one form of embodiment to another, which is represented in the 150 days that the chaotic flood waters prevailed. I've talked about that before, but you need to get the book if you want all the details on how that works. We haven't got time here. The giants did not survive through being on board the ark. 
nor was their bloodline or their DNA preserved through the survivors on the ark. So you can forget all your science fiction mumbo jumbo there. And again, this is something that I do go into in considerable depth in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. So uh, go to Amazon, get it. Nevertheless, we see giants once more in the post-flood world. The Bible connects these giants to the man we know as Nimrod, who is said most clearly in the Greek, but the Hebrew uses Gibor, which first appears in Genesis 6, to, uh, to have become a giant. And there are some scriptures and ancient traditional stories that give us a fairly clear indication that he was using some kind of divination to achieve that. The spread of the giant from this point on became a cultic issue rather than a genetic one. It was no longer tied to genetics or bloodlines. Very important. These giants, known as the Rephaim, were systematically eradicated from the land, as we see in Scripture from the book of Numbers right through to the books of Kings and Chronicles. It's worth noting that only the Nephilim were giants by birth and the Rephaim were not. We have evidence that God made sure that the biological line of the Rephaim was cut off in Ezekiel 31, concerning the fate of the spirits of first Enoch states explicitly that the spirits of the giants became unclean spirits who roam the earth and afflict humanity. This is shown to be consistent with the biblical teaching on demons or unclean spirits, although it is a lot harder to piece the doctrine together in any succinct fashion from the canon. Demons are incapable of taking on a human body as their own biologically. People can, of course, be afflicted by demons and can possess demons. Got to be careful about the terminology. You can't be possessed by a demon because demons don't make you inhabit their body. It's the other way around. People can have demons. If you look at the biblical language around this phenomenon, you'll see that people can have demons, but demons don't have people. You could think of demonic possession as more like a person having a virus. If you have a cold, you don't say, I am possessed by a cold. You say, I have a cold, and it doesn't change your identity or what you are as a species. So... Those are the first three forms of these entities, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, and the unclean spirits. And I said the first three because there's one more to come, found in Revelation chapter 9, and the beasts that ascend out of the bottomless pit. This is John's take on a future fulfillment of Joel chapter 1. Once again, this is not a new form that occurs by birth, so it still isn't reincarnation. Revelation 9 expresses the idea that those people who willingly take the mark of the beast will be afflicted by the spirits from the abyss. Over a period of five months, which coincides with the 150 days in the flood account, during which time the spirits of the Nephilim were stripped from their bodies, assuming a new form as the spirits of the Rephaim. So by some means that we're yet to rediscover, these spirits from the abyss will transform unbelieving humans into demonically empowered beings that achieve longevity at the cost of great torment, divine judgment, and everlasting death. Just to clarify... You cannot be born as one of these creatures. The only way that a human being can be transformed into some kind of demonically empowered being in the sense that Revelation 9 describes is by taking the mark of the beast, which is a declaration of allegiance to the Antichrist. Forget microchips, forget vaccines, forget all that garbage. This is all about who you are allegiant to. Either you bear the mark of Jesus Christ, which is the seal of his Holy Spirit, or you bear the mark of the Antichrist by getting sealed with one of his unholy spirits. That should be enough to be able to say clearly that no human being living today can possibly be a reincarnation of a giant. There's no such thing as reincarnation anyway. The Nephilim died in the flood. The last of the biblical giants was killed over 3,000 years ago. Demons were the result of the giant's bodily death, and they can't be born in human form or assume the identity of a human in the flesh. 
We may see a time when people willingly receive demons as part of their declaration of allegiance to the Antichrist. But you're not going to get that by accident or by birth. It has to be done knowingly. So if you're a Christian, there's no fear of that. And as a Christian, you owe it to yourself, to the world around you, and most importantly to God himself to use the gifts he's given you for discerning these truths. Read your Bible, stay in fellowship, remain in prayer, and you'll never have to worry about who you are in Christ. John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 says, But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Such a powerful truth. And that's all for this week. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Check out the other podcasts at the Raven Creek Social Club. And we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, I, I spoke over you. <laughs> oh, mama. Okay. <laughs> Stop making noises, body. Okay. G'day, now folks. I'm going to put it in outtakes. <laughs> Once you get to my age. Um, yeah. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the... You know, I, I wasn't going to interrupt you and make you do it again, but but we had a we had some kind of glitch there that slowed your words down at my oh, end like you were talking like a robot. I gotcha. I was wondering about what... Basically, I doze off if I'm left unattended for 10 minutes. So, um, much like your computer. Uh, <laughs> so, why would somebody want to tell you that you are already in that car? Here we go. So close. So, but not really. Not anywhere close at all. Okay. So why would somebody want to tell you that you are a reincarnate? <laughs> Did he say Kmart? <laughs> <laughs>
Why would somebody want to tell you that you're a real Kmart as opposed to a fake Kmart? That's highly insulting. Okay, you can do this. Deep breath. <sighs> Did you want me to say that whole sentence? Blah, blah, blah. People have asked about blood types, ancestry, uh, and people have... Okay. I was just starting to wonder if the dog only barks when I talk. I only have ears for you. This is the... Yeah. Yes, word. Absolutely. So we saw the Dumbledore film, which wasn't any good. Saw Eternals, no good. Saw The Matrix, no good. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Batman as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was just about to say, gee, don't you want to break that trend with a good movie? But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Batman was good. Batman was good. It was just, I don't know, it was just like long and dark and depressing and everyone's angry yeah. and so it's always raining and so yeah, I have right. that going. Well, for that's me. enough out of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just to make you feel bad. <laughs> what a great time um, for your life. Oh, absolutely. 